All right, 1 Kings chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18, I know I've got, probably got you a little worried saying that the sermon's going to be a little long, <laughs> so we'll kind of work our way through this. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 21 to 40, uh, think of the, uh, of the old westerns, all right, uh, when they had the showdowns, remember that the, the old movie, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, it's one of the most famous showdown movie scenes of all time. There's a lot of emotion, a lot of tension is conveyed, and not a single word is spoken, which makes it even better. Uh, what we're going to see here today is that it was time for a showdown. It was time for God's people to get serious, time for a, a, a line in the sand, so to speak. And, uh, and the question is, what are you going to do? Uh, we need to reevaluate our decision to serve God, to follow Jesus, or we just go on with a life that's empty of meaning. Uh, but don't worry, the showdown isn't between you and me. Um, y'all could take me. I'm really kind of a pushover myself. Um, the showdown would be between you and you and God. And God, on the other hand, is a different story. Let me uh, give you kind of the passage setting here. Israel has a wicked king and an even wickeder queen Jezebel Jezebel means uh, you know Baal is husband to or Baal exalts Jezebel's not really a loose she she's really not a slut um, she's a strong-willed woman who is unsubmitted to God <laughs> that's what made Jezebel what she was um, it's what made her dangerous. Strong-willed women are a gift from God as long as they are determined to love God and serve God. Jezebel was not that. And God's people were given to this idolatry propagated by Jezebel and supported by Ahab, this wicked king, very weak husband. Uh, and he was one of the most wicked kings God's people had uh, just about ever. God had withheld the reign for about three years now as judgment and and there was a famine because of it nothing was was growing much uh, now Baal was the storm god Baal was in charge of bringing rain and dew uh, then you know fertility and 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 crops to the land and God was directly attacking this false god by showing who was really in control of the rain and the dew um, you know, the actual worship of Baal was carried out by, by sexual acts by both male and female temple prostitutes. Uh, that was understood to arouse Baal, who would then bring rain to Mother Earth and make her fertile. When the crops were abundant, uh, Baal was praised and thanked for his abundant rain, and it's in this context that the drought has the impact that it does. Not only was the lack of rain a threat to survival, it was a sign of Baal's unhappiness. It's in this context that the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal really has its significance. The issue is really who's in control. Right? Who's in charge, Baal or Yahweh? Now, it's a mistake to think that Baal worship uh, was something that was practiced way back when and it's not practiced today. We know that there were usually lots of people gathered together, often on a high hill. Think of a theater or a stadium today. 
they would observe the public sex, just like we see in movies and television on the internet. You know, we think that watching these things is different than idolatry, and really it's not. The whole community would come out and all the best pagan worldly ideas for, for success and crops and, 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 and fertility were, were promoted just like the business seminars that we have today that promote unbiblical ideas. Wicked personalities were respected and given the platform. Some of them were great dancers. Some of them were great musicians. In our day, you know, people who go to our churches, they celebrate celebrities when we should be doing just the opposite. Psalm 101, verse 1 and verse 3 says, I will walk into my house, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. See, the people in these celebrations would dance around an Asherah pole, which is nothing more than a phallic symbol. It's uh, really the equivalent to, uh, to the stripper poles in nightclubs. The people who acted out this lustful, licentious, vulgar scenes for the enjoyment of all who came to watch. They had all different kinds of sexual experiences on display and all of the, of, of, of the contributions that are popular today in sitcoms and movies, news reports. On top of that, they invited the crowds to participate. The children were the real losers, though, as... Uh, some of them were actually literally sacrificed on the altar of sex and success. To participate, you had to neglect your children, much like we see going on with Planned Parenthood today for convenience sake. Baal worship in reality corresponds exactly to the activities that most people freely participate in today. They do so without really understanding the nature of idolatry because idolatry is simply enjoying things raised up against Christ. The people were involved because they liked the excitement. They liked the liberty. They liked the business that it facilitated. And of course the Music was great and the entertainment was exciting. Believers in Yahweh, though, were, were conflicted. They didn't agree with everything that was happening at these parties, but they had a hard time giving them up because they really liked the social aspect and didn't want to be thought of as weird by their neighbors by not going. Also, personal success, networking, was dependent on their attendance at these things. And if you quit going to these parties, you would not be able to do business like you did before. Your network would dry up. The guilds which promoted the high places demanded support. So uh, to support the high places was to support the guild. And support was based on participation and financial contribution. It's all tied up in the, in the rules of, of doing business. And like today, it's, it's really, it's who you know. And, and it's who you party with that gets you the good business deals. Anyone questioning the activity would end up on the wrong side of public opinion, like Elijah will see, and God sends this man to tell the people it's time to fish or cut bait. It's time to make a decision, time uh, really for a showdown. Now, this is uh, some information from, from um, Chris 
Platt, uh, which if you ladies Bible study, you guys know, know some of this. There's a book entitled Worldliness that says seduction by the world is the church's greatest challenge. Spurgeon said, I believe that one reason the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Put your finger on any prosperous page of the church history and you'll find a little marginal note that says, in this age people could readily see where the church began and the world ended. Today we have a hard time telling when one begins and one ends. We tend to be so very much like the world. We're virtually identical to the world in our materialism, in our sexual immorality, in our self-centeredness. Even our spending patterns look like the world's. Our giving patterns, you know, really only about 6% of believers actually tithe. The viewing of pornography is the same whether you're in church or out of church. The numbers are the same. Church people are just as likely to have sex outside of marriage as non-church people. Marriages are just as likely to end in divorce whether you're in church or out of church. Marital abuse is the same in church or out of church. Parental priorities for their children are the same as non-church parents. Their kids, uh, they want their kids to do good at what the world thinks is important. Sports and entertainment. 75% of kids who leave church at 18 will never come back. We are living just like the world. We are, for all intents and purposes, Baal worshipers. And if you look in verse 21, Elijah, Elijah sets up the dilemma and tells them, uh, really he's going to tell them later on that they need to make up their minds. Look at what it says in verse 21. Chapter 18 Verse 21, and Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. The people answered him, Not a word. He's setting themselves up. Elijah is setting the people up here. He's saying, How long are you going to halt between these two opinions? And this word halt means to be limp or lame. Uh, you know, they're stumbling around between two opinions, two thoughts. Two, two ideas of two worldviews. They're laid up, vacillating, unable to move or function. They can't make up their minds. They're undecided. They're double-minded, unstable, not knowing whether they should serve God or serve Baal. They're useless, worthless concerning worship and service. No clue which worldview to adopt. No understanding of which way to live. They can't decide if God is really God or if Baal's really God. Now that's that's the setting. Now, let's, let's get down to business. Verse 21, we are presented a challenge, a challenge of two choices. But the people, it says, they, they, they answered him not a word. He says, you choose who you're going to serve, either God or Baal, and the people just sit there. They don't say anything. They stood there silent and uncommitted. I mean, they, they had a lot to lose here. They had a lot at stake, and the reason is that they were undecided. The reason they're undecided, they forgot who God is and what God is able to do. They forgot that God had already promised them everything they were looking for in Baal, God had already promised to provide. 
the rest of the passage is Elijah helping them make up their minds. It says, how long are you going to ride the fence? You know, we think we can live in both worlds. We think we can ride the fence, not committed to God, not committed to the devil or the world, just kind of on the fence, the best of both worlds, until it's too late. We, we, we learn that the fence belongs to Satan himself. With God, it's all or nothing. God has no fence. Look at verse 22. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. See, the world looks more equipped. It looks like it has the resources. The world looks like it has the answers. One prophet and 450 prophets of Baal. One man of God, 450 prophets of Baal. Worldly wisdom sounds good. It makes sense. It, it seems to work. It tickles the ears, but it's empty, useless, vain, sensual, devilish. You take worldly advice on any subject, doesn't matter if it's psychology, finances, family, uh, child-rearing, vocation, all of it is so much garbage compared to the Word of God. And if the Word of God does not have the answers, there is no answer. Verse 23, let them therefore give us two bullocks. And let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on the wood and put no fire under. This is, this is going to be the showdown. Is it God or is it the devil? Can God supply or can the world supply? Who has the real power? Who has the real influence? Who has the answer to cancer? to financial problems, to family issues, to marriage turmoil, to wayward children, to a dead-end job. Who has answers to those questions? Go ahead and ask the world. Listen to their answers. If they have any, they're not going to work. They'll tell you things. They'll supply you with what looks like information. But the world ain't got no answers. Look at verse 24. As he's explaining what's going to happen. And ye call on your gods. He's talking to the 450 prophets of Baal. And I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and says, it is well spoken. Now get the picture. I... Elijah's saying, all right, we'll set these two altars, we'll make two sacrifices, the God that's going to, you know, take it by fire, he'll be in charge, he'll be the boss, he'll be the God. Since they had forgotten all that God had done for them, they had to be shown God's power and God's ability once again. In their ignorance, they agreed to a test of wills between this demonic Baal and the Lord God Almighty, a test of power and ability between these two gods. See, they had forgotten the landmarks, the landmarks that were set up to remind them of what God had done for them in the past and to remind them of God's ability to do that and more in the future. We, we need landmarks. We can call them faith marks times in your life that you look back on and remember that the Lord is good and the Lord is able 
Israel had them. Every growing Christian should have them too. Times that you look back on when, when, when God shows his might. Times to keep you going until the next time that God shows his might. Now look at verse 25. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose ye one bullet for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many, and call on the name of your gods, and put no fire under. Here it is. Choose. Decide. Now, if it's movies you watch, if God is God, then what movies are you going to watch? If God is God, then what friends are you going to hang around with? If God is God... What job will you have? How will you work? Not just where you work, but how will you work? And if God is God, when and how do you serve God? On your schedule or his? If God is God, then what music do you listen to? If God is God, how do you spend your time on your computer? Gaming, porn, gambling? If God is God, then why do you have a bad attitude when things don't go your way? Why do you cry out to help for God in the storm, but then you curse God for the mosquito? Look at verse 26. These 450 prophets of Baal, they call on Baal all day. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. Uh, But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. Here they are, meet our needs, answer our prayers, give us meaning to life's questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And the Bible says there was not a voice. No one answered because you can't answer if you don't exist, right? They could not get an answer. And if it were demons involved, God told them to shut up and they shut it up. The world has no ability. It has no answers for us. And all of Satan's answers are lies. Now look at verse 27. This looks mean. Maybe it is. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's talking, or he's pursuing, or he's on a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. You see, what he is tormenting them. He's mocking them. He is laying down some serious smack on these false prophets. It's proper to ridicule the ridiculous. Oh, do it louder. He might be asleep. You've got to wake him up first. Oh, he may be on a journey. He may be taking a trip, and I don't think he he can hear you. Maybe you should shout a little bit louder. It's ridiculous to trust the world, to expect a non-God to answer a prayer or to supply a need. This shows to the people of Israel how completely foolish these prophets' endeavors were, and in their turning to someone other than their God. See, sin makes people stupid it's a stupid thing to try what god says will not work look at verse 28 and they cried aloud and cut themselves after the manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out from them now what do we what do we learn from this 
that they responded to Elijah's mocking and put more emphasis into it. What we learn from this is sacrificing ourselves to the world or to Satan will not turn them to sacrifice for us. They owe us nothing, and they know it. They will give us nothing. They do not love us. They are not about to serve us because we serve them. They will not make good their debt, even if they did owe us anything. Nothing we do will change that about them. You cannot please the world into liking you. It can't happen. Now look at verse 29. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time uh, of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. Of course not. The world has no answer for us. Satan has no power to answer your prayers or meet your needs. Why do we run to an empty well? Why do we climb into a sinking boat? Nothing happened because nothing could happen. There's no ability there. The world has absolutely nothing to offer you. Not their wisdom, not your wisdom. You're calling a number that cannot answer. Verse 30 to 32. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. Unto whom the world, uh, word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as could contain two measures of seed. Here, we're learning that if we're going to approach God, we must approach God by his rules, by his standard. How dare we tell God how things are going to get done? How dare we come up with a plan and then ask God to join us? I mean, who do we think we are? God does not join us in our plans or schemes or dreams. We join him or we are alone because God is God and we are not. In verse 30, what we have is the restoration, the putting things back the way that they should be, repairing what is broken, and then continuing on, moving back to God's standard, lining up with, submitting to God's design and plan. Again, it's joining him. Uh, We need to move towards him, back towards our first love. Verse 31 and 32, God calls his people his. Elijah calls them and they move towards him. His people are to be separated from the world, in the world, but not of the world. And this trench, it wasn't really very big. Two measures of sea, that's about four gallons. I mean, this little ditch could hold about four gallons, but it was enough to set them apart. Right? It was enough to, to draw the line. Our answers, our need supply, our life and being are all in one place. And that is a separated place. A place unmixed with corruptible wisdom from the world. Verse 30 to 32 reminds us that, that all of this is in God's power. He calls the shots. We must do it his way. Now look at verse 33. This is uh, interesting. 
It says, and he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Remember, it's been three years since there's been rain. There was a drought going on. How much water is this? Well, a barrel or a jar is about six gallons times four. That's 24 gallons. Uh, we'll see that they do it three times. About 75 gallons of precious water during a drought when it hasn't rained for three years. That is outlandish. That is extreme. That is over the edge. What could possibly be accomplished by that much waste? If it were waste. See, that is what the world says when we whip out our Bibles. That's what the world says when we try to do things God's way. God's people seem crazy, out there, off. It makes no sense to them. This is going to show the power and glory of God. If oil is a type of the Holy Spirit, then water here is a type of the Word of God, which means you must bathe yourself Bathe your sacrifice. Bathe your prayer in the word of God. This book speaks. God's voice comes from this. This book is the mind of God open for you to know and understand. It's the sole authority for faith and practice. It is all things that pertain to life and godliness. How we are to live. How we are to please God. And it must drench you. In case you're wondering, now would be an appropriate time for an amen. amen. Thank you. Look at verse 34 and 35. And he says, do it a second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water ran around about the altar, and he filled the trench also with the water. Three times, about 74 gallons or so, filled the trench running out all over the place. Remember that in Hebrew writing, the style of the number three shows the highest level of intensity possible. Remember in Isaiah, when he saw uh, the Lord and, and, and the train of the Lord filled the temple. And as we sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. You cannot convey any more intensity than that. And God's power and ability will be shown with the highest level of determination and intensity. And the word by type is given a threefold emphatic position in the answer to our prayers and the explanation to our questions. Can you fathom the importance of the word of God? They'd been listening to the words of a fake, a non-God, a liar. Now they must listen to the word of the one true God. Verse 35 again, And the water ran around about the altar and filled the trench also of the water. The sacrifice is covered and, 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 and surrounded by water, the word of God. On every side, access by the world is cut off, save it goes through the water. Do you see the picture? You get the point? Oh, that we would filter the world's influence through the word of God. 
that the word of God would, would be our standard for separation from the world instead of whether it'll make us popular or not or whether it'll be fun or not or whether it'll be uncomfortable or not. This sacrifice is soaked. It is drenched. But look what happens. Verse 36 and 37. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, oh, said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, that thou hast turned their hearts back again. Bathed in the word of God and prayer, now the sacrifice is ready. Now you notice the contrast. The prophets of Baal all day hooping and hollering and cutting themselves to the point of exhaustion. The prophet of God, 63 words in English. That's it. About 20 seconds it takes. See, God's attention is easy to get when you do it his way. That'll be another time for that. Amen. Okay. God's attention is easy to get when you do it his way. If you have, if you have trouble getting God's attention, you're doing it wrong. Everything's ready. Now look at verse 38. Then... The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God answers beyond all expectations. Humanly, it's impossible. It's a piece of cake with God. It makes no sense to the world, but the world isn't the standard. God has shown himself once again to be the only, the one, the true, living Lord, God Almighty. What will the people do now? Will they be healed of their indecision? Will they cross the line and follow God? Will they slide off the fence finally and commit to serving and living for God? Look at verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. You bet they did. And they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. See, the ignorance is gone. Now they get it. Now they understand. It was time to make a decision. And they made the right ones. The simplest form of logic. Baal is not God. God is God. So now serve God. He is God. So you make up your mind. He is God. He is to be served. Baal pulled the trigger and nothing happened. Baal is impotent. No power. No God. God pulled his trigger and there was a controlled nuclear reaction. Power beyond all power for everyone to see. Baal did nothing. God did above and far beyond anything that was ever expected. And when God does something, he makes sure that those who need to know it was him, knows it was him. So what next? What's their choice? Follow, continue to follow the emptiness of the world. Follow and live for a powerful Lord God Almighty. 
They were reminded again that everything they were looking for in Baal, God had already provided. We forget that everything the world thinks it offers us, everything that it thinks we need, we already have in our God. Now things get serious. Look at verse 40. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, and let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and slew them there. 450 false prophets died that day. They, on God's direction, removed, so to speak, all the ungodly influence that held them back from serving God. Now, what are your friends? What are your habits? What are things that are separating you from God? You have the same friends. You do the same things. Uh, you don't talk about Christ to your friends. You haven't changed any. You're still a pagan priest dancing around in your sin, hoping not to break contact with the world that, 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 that you're so comfortable with. If you're doing that, it means you're still lost. You're still hellbound. You've got to cut loose. You've got to cross the line. You have to turn your back on the old life and follow Christ with all the strings of your former life severed. See, that is repentance. You can't leave it and turn to Jesus. Then you'll never get saved. Let's try to get some application here. The choices are to either follow Christ or get saved and follow Christ or just quit wasting the Lord's time. He's proven himself countless times he's proven himself to us more than we deserve but if you're not going to follow him then don't quit the halfway job of showing up when you feel like it or missing cause of some lame transparent excuse you're not fooling anybody it's just just quit i mean why read your bible if you're not going to live by it it doesn't matter how early you get up in the morning or how late you stay up studying it. If you don't live by it, you're not committed to it. Stop the act. God sees through it. Stop the pretending. God is telling us, serve him or take a hike. Now, that's strong language, but you know, God's a strong God. We can be foolish and die, or we can be wise and live. See, God, again, God has no fence. Will you continue to be halt and lame? Will you persist in trying to serve two masters? Will you go on trying for the best of both worlds? God says no. Make up your mind. It's one or the other. God will not put up with his people having one leg in the world and one leg in the church. There are souls that need to be saved. This church needs to be built, either get on board or stay in the dock, but this little ship's uh, ready to sail, and it'll sail without you. Either serve God or don't. That's, that's the whole thing. Either trust him to save you or don't trust him to save you. It's a simple choice. It may not be an easy choice, but it's a simple choice.
we see that God takes serving him very serious. And when God's people try to mix in with the world, that really, really upsets him. See, we have the showdown. The guns were drawn. The triggers were pulled. But only one shot rang out. The smoke clears. So the question really that I want to leave with you. Are you going to be left standing to serve God? Are you going to fish or cut bait? Are you going to serve God the way God needs and deserves and wants to be served? Or will you continue to serve yourself and dabble in the world for the things you think you can get out of it? God says, make a decision. Make a choice. Quit vacillating between two worldviews. If God's God, then serve him. If Baal's God, then serve him. Oh, and by the way, Baal's not a God and God is God. So your choice is really no choice. Because your choice boils down then to, well, do I live or do I die? God's a gentleman. He'll let you make the choice. And he'll also let you suffer the consequences or the blessings of your choice. Just stand with your heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we want to thank you this morning for this example, this account with Elijah and Really, Lord, it's not so much Elijah, I guess, as it's the encounter between you and your people. And you reminding them once again that you are a God that is to be served, that is to be loved, that is to be devoted to. You're a God that is to be loved with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And while, Lord, you would not exact that kind of judgment on us today because your word says you wouldn't. Lord, you do not change. The dispensation has changed, but you haven't changed. Your hatred of idolatry among your people is the same as it was then. I pray that your Holy Spirit would examine us and reveal to us the areas of our life that we are guilty of idolatry. And Father, help us to put to death the idols that we serve instead of you. Not so that we get you to love us more. Not so that we get any more favor with you. Simply because you love us. And we love you. Father, pull us out, a separated people, for your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Keith, could you come ahead?